Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. It's uh, we're one year since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. UN says that more than 8,000 civilians have died, hundreds of children, and, you know, though the the true death toll really, I mean, I don't think it's too hard to realize this, is probably much, much higher. The military casualties on both sides are estimated to have climbed into the hundreds of thousands. It's it's mind-boggling, really. But you know what? Amid all the horror, there are still signs of hope. And we have a, a very special guest with us here today, Jeff Semple. He is a senior correspondent with Global National News in Toronto, and he was able to take some time out of his day. Jeff, thanks so much for spending some time with us here today on The Roy Green Show. Hey, David. Great to be with you. Am I understanding this correctly? You recently returned from Ukraine? Yeah, I got back from our most recent trip uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and then prior to that had been, uh, that was the third trip. So we were there oh, okay. in the, sort of the first days of the invasion uh, in March of last year, then returned last summer another four or five weeks and then just recently returned from a third trip and uh you know quite a difference uh obviously you know over the past year i can imagine and and jeff i would love to hear about that that difference and how things have changed but you know it's i'm hearing on the radio i'm hearing from others i've seen it in print it's the it's the one year anniversary i mean i don't know there's something about that that just doesn't sit well with me right it's we're not we're not celebrating anything here this is really about commemorating something and hopefully there's a celebration coming down the road yeah well that's it right i mean obviously the word uh, anniversary sort of has different connotations and sort of wedding anniversary and that sort of thing but we're in this case uh, not celebrating anything um except perhaps for the fact that uh, very few people a year ago thought that we would even make it to a year right i mean it's easy to remember i mean i remember you know just over a year ago interviewing a laundry list of so-called experts, uh, all of whom predicted that, well, most were predicting that Russia wouldn't invade and those who thought it would, didn't think Ukraine would last more than a few days. And here we are a year later. So I guess if nothing else, that's that's a positive. But you're right. I mean, it's a a tragic uh, day on the calendar. Um, The fact that this has happened, the fact that it's dragged on this long. And one thing I hear a lot from Ukrainians is they don't like the anniversary talk because uh, they think it distracts from the fact that their country has actually been at war since 2014 when Russia went in and, and took Crimea and started fighting in the Donbass. And so really it's been, you know, many years um, of war right. in Ukraine, but uh, obviously nothing on the scale of the, the full scale invasion we saw this time last year. Yeah, I, I heard a little bit of, of Zelensky's uh, 50, I think it was about a 15 minute speech. And he talks about this as being one of the most painful days in Ukrainian history. Yeah. And, you know, I like, he's, he's always, a, he's a quote machine, that guy, as we say, in the, <laughs> right. he's a very good talker. And he has sure. a line about how they, they woke up early and uh, haven't slept since. And mm. I just thought that was such a good line. I mean, we've heard so many versions of that from like ordinary Ukrainians who, 
you know, especially now after a year are just like utterly emotionally exhausted and traumatized. I mean, obviously, particularly people in frontline communities, but even in cities that are further away from the front lines, like the capital of Kiev, um, you know, where people are to an extent trying to live their lives. I mean, they're right. going to work, they're eating at restaurants, but like almost every day still there are air raid sirens warning of incoming Russian missile strikes and every day there are funerals. And so I think people are really sort of traumatized by that. But I would say, David, despite, you know, that trauma and that emotional exhaustion, um, the resolve of the Ukrainian people, if, from my experience talking to them, has, has only increased, it would seem. I mean, like, you can't find anyone who who wants to get throw in the towel. I mean, if anything, right. they're, they're more defiant than they were before. Like, they're not willing to give an inch to Russia, even if it would mean ending the war. They really are, are digging in, in a sense, on all on kind of all levels. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I mean, and, and I think for many of them, when I ask, you know, where is that coming from? Right. I right. think you think after a year of this war, like you would be looking for any kind of off ramp. Uh, but it's, you know, a lot of them talked about just if they've paid such a heavy price that they don't want that to be in vain. I mean, I interviewed a 24 year old widow named Licia and Lviv, who just buried her husband. Uh, they got married uh, a year ago and mm. uh, just after the war started, uh, so the invasion happened. Like that, right. Yeah. And then now she says even more, um, he was just recently killed in the last few weeks and, and she said it has only strengthened her resolve, right? Wow. Um, that this, we can't let them win. So kind of a, a crazy question in a way, but the contrast. So you were there in the early days of this invasion. What, what, if, what are some of the bigger changes that you've noticed in that in 12, well, exactly to the day, 12 months? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the biggest one I think we alluded to already that uh, at the beginning, I mean, the, it was like the whole country felt like it was under attack, right? Like no matter where you were, if the Russians weren't at your doorstep yet, they were coming, right? And now clearly Vladimir Putin's invasion has not gone, gone according to his plan. Uh, and this is now, you know, a, I think Russia has about 17, 18% of Ukraine's territory now. So that's that's dropped significantly from, you know, the early days of the war. And most of that territory that Russia has controlled and, and, and is fighting for is in the south and the east of the country, um, where you really see, you know, some of the worst uh, fighting and like just communities and neighborhoods completely flattened. But then, you know, you drive, you know, the distance from, you know, the Donbass to, to Kiev, I think, is sort of like roughly Vancouver, Calgary. I might be butchering that. Okay. I did look that up once upon a time. But it's, you know, it's far enough away that um, right. it's, now it feels worlds apart, right? Like sure. Eve, yeah. you can go have a craft beer in the evening or a latte in the morning. Uh, you're still under threat, but so they've bizarre. kind of gotten used to it. Yeah. Yeah. This is just, this is becoming a way of life. I was out last week with a friend for dinner, a Ukrainian uh, waitress. Um, you, know, you know, been here about uh, seven or eight months and talk, it was very moving. You know, she started talking about her her brother who was still there and her family that were still there. Dad stayed. And so mom did too. She came over on her own and it was so the drive home for me was so, I don't know, uh, just uh, you know, help me out. Jeff. It was surreal. It was, it was, I just really, this is the world we're living in. Like that was kind right. Is that, is that naivete or is that, is that, uh, you know, is that something else? You know, that really reminds me too of like a lot of the scenes. One of the most heart-wrenching common scenes we saw like in the first days of the war were families being split up like that. Like there were the train stations and it was just heart-wrenching. Oh. Like you would see, you know, fathers and sons 
putting their your mother's wives daughters mm. onto trains yeah. and then like and not sure if that was the last time they were right. going to see each other and that that played out hundreds of times on every train platform in the country like it was just horrific and now yeah a lot of those families are are still apart i mean you know obviously some never came home um but yeah i mean it's hard to wrap your head around that i mean just the scale of not only the lives lost, but the families ripped apart or, yeah. or separated. Oh, the the damage, the 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 long term effects of the trauma and the PTSD and so on are just. I mean, we 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 how can we how can we know at this point? I want to ask you about a show that you you've produced that's going to be airing in in the next uh, day or two. I'd love to chat about that. But do you have a sense, Jeff, um, from from you know the people you're interacting with and interviewing and so on? What's sort of next and and a couple more years. I mean, it sounds like they're, they're in it for the long haul. Yeah. I mean, I was worried you were going to ask me that because I'd just been so consistently, <laughs> consistently wrong right. uh, for the past year. I mean, it's just, yeah. Like the, I think, well, how can, know, any, really does, how can anyone well, know? Thing. Right. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. and I, but I think I'll tell you, and I, you know, I'm not just saying this. I mean, it's become almost a cliche to talk about this sort of world famous Ukrainian resilience. We hear mm. Vladimir Zelensky talking about how they're not going to give give up an inch of territory. Like they're not willing to negotiate away sure. a single piece of Ukraine. If and and that's the refrain we hear over and over right. and over again from the Ukrainian civilians. So to your question, like where does this go from here? I just like I don't see. It's hard to see a negotiated settlement uh period like how right. why would the ukrainians will not give an inch and obviously you know vladimir putin needs at least a f something resembling a face-saving off-ramp right, right uh for his own self-interest so how, how do you reconcile those two things i i have no idea but well, i will tell you it's the the american uh, especially the Americans and, and their attention span makes would make me nervous because mm. uh, not to take us in a totally different direction, but uh, well, no, but I know, think I'll, you raise a super relevant point about just attention span in general. What's going to happen as it it isn't as interesting as it used to be, or it isn't as newsworthy as it used to be? What then? Ukrainians are very very aware of that, and they were very right. happy to do interviews with us because they I know bet. that needing keeping this in the international attention, especially for you know like big funders like the Americans, is, right. is vital to their survival. Well, glo yeah. glo global resolve, it seems to me, is essential. Hey, can you, as we wrap up here, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, is it is it called The New Reality? Yeah, so the Global's Current Affairs program is called The New Reality. It airs every Saturday at 7 o'clock, and we've got a special program this time around. Uh, we take you to a city I don't think anyone's seen or heard about before. It's this little city called Marhanets in south-central Ukraine. It's right on the Dnipro River, and it has the unfortunate distinction of being located right across the river from a Russian occupied nuclear mm. plant, the Zaporizhia okay. nuclear plant. Now the Russians took control of this nuclear plant a, a year ago and they've held it ever since. And they have rebuffed calls from world leaders in the UN to create sort of a demilitarized zone around it to ensure it doesn't get hit and potentially spark a meltdown. Instead, the Russians have used a nuclear plant essentially as an army base to launch mm. attacks at nearby communities like Marhanets, which we visited. And they are defenseless. I mean, they wouldn't dare fire back, right, or risk triggering a nuclear disaster. So this community has been taking a beating. Uh, it's basically in a fight with its hands behind, tied behind its back. And so we went there uh, in part for that, but also because there's a special relationship developing with this community of Marhanets and another community in Canada. Uh, in oh, BC, wow. and super, so we will delve super into cool that. And super important. Yeah, I hope so. And so that, yeah, yeah. we'll delve into more uh, more of that story on the new reality. Lewis Cohen, 
he's a filmmaker, uh, producer. We can we're going to call him a, a, an Emmy winning, uh, Emmy award winning uh, showrunner. But check this out: quote It's tempting to believe that our present age of fake news and alternative facts is unique and unprecedented, unprecedented, but it's not. Since the dawn of civilization, people in power have played with the truth, danced with the deception, and altered reality to suit their interests, often with the help of propaganda and disinformation, close quote. That is from the press kit for a new series, TVO series, actually six episodes, I believe, uh, that our next guest, uh, Lewis Cohen, is here to uh, talk about. And uh, I think we're even going to be taking some callers. Lewis, thank you so much for spending some time with me today on the show. You're very welcome. Great to be here, David. Thanks. Lewis, you you know, yeah, really appreciate it. I, you know, I, there, there's so many places we can go. And first, I just want to say congratulations on, on I, I, I'm going to, can I call it an epic six part series? I mean, really, this is super important. And, and you, I mean, I learned a ton. So first off, congratulations and thank you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, you can call it epic. I won't, but it was, <laughs> I think I will say about it is it was an incredible group effort. You know, it's a co-production and we have, uh, directors, other producers, and, you know, I was spearheading it, but uh, unbelievable team of people doing the research and uh, the interviews. Yeah. And so just, just for our listeners too, uh, I, I just want to say that, uh, you know, we've got uh, one, one episode, Weapons of War, we've got the politics of religion. There's a whole episode on conspiracy theories and scandals and the power of money and influencers. I mean, you leave, uh, you really do go deep in a, in, a, in a really compelling way. Can you talk to me a little bit about this idea that, you know, propaganda, deceit, deception has been around with us for, for, for a very long time? Sure. I mean, you know, it, it's, it is one of the discoveries for me of the show. It's not something that, you know, we, we tend to feel like what we're living is unique. I mean, both as individuals and as a society. Uh, so it's natural, you know, the, the internet never existed. Uh, right. Chatbots never existed um, and so on and so forth. And so, but yeah, when we look back, each episode really traces that exact idea. It starts out and says, where are we now? You know, so in conspiracy, we started out with COVID and all the things that that is wrought in the way of conspiracy theories. In the in the war episode, we started out with, you know, ISIS um, and some of their antics in Syria. Um, you know, we're always sort of capturing the present moment, um, you know, in religion uh, as well, uh, 9-11, as well as some of the revelations for the residential schools. And then we go back in time. This is the format of the show to the really to the ancient world. So, you know, depending on which episode, a couple thousand years ago, and we see that, you know, whether it's Ramses II, the Pharaoh of Egypt, um, you know, inscribing fake news about his single-handed war victory over the Hittites that never happened all over these temple walls. And people believed this, you know, for literally millennia until some archaeological discoveries were made in Turkey um, in the 20th century, or whether it's you know, a monk in medieval England uh, spreading lies about the Jewish community in the town and suggesting that these people, you know, had to ritually murder a Christian child every year, um, you know, in some kind of conspiratorial cult. All, you know, he was doing that. Ramses was doing it in Egypt to attract, uh, to consolidate his political power because he wasn't from a legitimate ruling seed in terms of his lineage. Uh, The monk you know, was perhaps, we don't know for sure, but doing it to attract uh, new, to get his, his the, the victim of this terrible murder uh, 
turned into a saint and therefore attracting pilgrims to his new cathedral. So it was really at some level of popularity and, and financial contest. Right. These things have been going on, you know, around the world for centuries. It's not confined to Europe. It's not confined, uh, you know, to the Northern Hemisphere. It's not confined to the Southern Hemisphere. It just it, it seems to be part of human nature. And so we have these examples. Lewis, what's interesting, what's really interesting to me is uh, if some listeners may know this, and I've, I've been on air for a few years doing podcasting and, and hosting events, and I'm also a magician. So I'm kind of practiced in the art of deception. You know, I get right. paid to fool people. I get paid, I get paid to deceive people and have a good time doing it. I mean, what, what I think you, you really have uncovered here is that, that this, is, this is wide and it's deep and it goes way back. I mean, on one level, you go, wow, I, I had no idea. But the, on the other level, for me, it's, this is deeply unsettling how deep it really does go. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it really is. It's unsettling. And one of the things that I think maybe compound... Oh, sorry, David, go ahead. No, no, that's great. Yeah, go. go. Uh, you were just going to say what might maybe compounding it? Yeah, what may be compounding it, you know, and makes it even more unsettling right now is just the sort of power of the technology. Um, right, you know that's 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 amplifying, spreading, communicating these lies, and and sort of you know I mean we've talked about uh, the, the sort of siloing of information and, and the way in which you know there's been a kind of fracturing of of social cohesion, um, partly by this technology. Everybody's able to find. I mean, I'm obviously talking about the internet. You know, their little feedback loop where they're getting their worldview reinforced, um, and and the technology is so powerful that some of these messages are getting, you know, either carried into the mainstream or spread globally in a way that wasn't necessarily possible before. And we've seen this at different times in history. We saw this with the with the development of the printing press, which comes up right. in, the, in the series a lot. It just amplified what was going on and made certain lies possible, possibility of spreading them faster, farther and more convincingly than ever before. Um, so that is definitely one of the disturbing things. But of course, you have to ask yourself, if this is our nature, that some of us, in any case, if not all of us, are willing to take advantage of others and to sort of, you know, to spread disinformation and lies about our opponents, whether they're our ideological opponents or our competitors sure. uh, in the world of finance, well, whatever it is. This is obviously disturbing self-knowledge for humans to have. And, and how do well, we and all that? of a sudden, Lewis, all of a sudden, too, it, it takes on a whole new meaning. It's this, this is about fear. It's about power and, 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 and distrust. And, and can I even say lack of relationship? 100%. Lewis, what, what, what are your thoughts on what's currently happening from, from a uh, propagandistic, is that, is that the right word, perspective, you know, in, re, in relation to Ukraine and the war and, and what we're actually seeing. Any, any thoughts on that? Well, it's definitely, I mean, it's technically not it's, part of the series. I'm happy to offer an opinion. I, I really, I do have to emphasize, you know, that, that this is outside my realm of expertise. Yeah, well, I mean, well, well, Lewis, how about we, how, how no, about we circle I, I it around to I, I, how, how can you ever that, really know? One thing, I will say one thing though, David, is that what's incredible is sometimes when you read about the lies of history, you know, as I have researched, you know, there's six stories in each one of our six episodes. So there's 36 right. mini documentaries here. So I've looked at a lot of lies and some that didn't make the cut. Um, you know, you sort of say, well, how could people believe this stuff? It's so outrageous, you know, or it's so self-serving, whatever. These different reasons right. that you might feel like 
just stupefied. And yet, it's interesting to circle back to Ukraine, is the things that Putin is saying to Russians and, you know, and, and to the world, to anybody who wants to listen, are, you know, in his own country, for reasons that make total sense, widely believed, uh, you know, at least according to the polls that seem to have some reliability. And, and it's incredible. You see in live action in the 21st century how some really just stupendous lies and manipulations and self-serving proclamations uh, can appear to be the truth under mm. certain circumstances. So I, I just that is the one thing that I take away that relates directly to the, to the series. Sure, sure. How can you ever really know in the moment? Like, his, doesn't history sort of tell us and teach us that you look back and you understand? You know, you see the dots connecting, right? When you get to watch the TVO series called uh, Truth and Lies. Yeah, for sure. If you get to do, you know, a year of research and interview right, some of the right. biggest experts on the, the different stories uh, and the stories themselves have a lot of literature. Yeah, for sure. It, you know, but it's incredible. You know, something I was listening to. So I, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know how. It's, um, it's you know, I think one, being yeah. the least ideological possible is one of the ways in which we get to the truth faster. To mm. my little attempt to answer that question, um, you know. So I, I lean left. I, I try and hover to the center. But there is, you know, an incredible podcast I was listening to this morning in which two completely mainstream Harvard MIT scientists have talked about the high, high probability in their view that the COVID-19, you know, was start, was escaped from a lab. But that is such a controversial and toxic perspective mm. because it's associated with conspiracy theories that ironically, we can't even hear about it. So CNN and BBC won't play this story. Right. You know, so it's so almost like, get, a, like it's already confined within some kind of bubble. Exactly. You know, and, and, so the point is, it doesn't. It's not a right wing problem. It's not a left wing problem. As soon as we get ideological, we stop seeing, you know, some of the more nuanced yeah. realities in front of us. Uh, hey, can you just really quickly tell us? Uh, was I right on that? It's it's TVO. That's what. Can you tell us how how your uh, listeners can see this series? Yeah, I mean, I, I I should have researched this during the ad, but you know what I always do when I want to send the link to, you know, we aired weekly for six weeks that ended last week. We are on TVO.org, TVO.org, Truth and Lies. Truth, so if you truth, truth just and Lies. Google TVO.org or TVO Truth and Lies, it'll bring you to a page. It's really user-friendly. You've got, you know, it's the Truth and Lies page. You've got six episodes lined up with, uh, you know, each and, one. And, on no, a, with and no subscription required, right, Lewis? 100%. No subscription required. <laughs> there you go. Anybody in Canada. In Canada. Yeah. It's not that, available that, that, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. We're talking about something that I think we're going to reflect back on and see as a bit of a thread for today's show. Uh, anxiety, fear, mistrust. You know, what do all these things sort of mean for us, you know, globally, I suppose, of course, but more importantly, 
what does it mean for us individually? How does it affect us and our neighbors and, uh, you know, how we live our lives and uh, how we teach our children and how we run our businesses. And so we have uh, Eden Rahim here with us. He's a portfolio manager uh, for Next Edge Capital. Uh, you can find out more about them at nextedgecapital.com. And he works in biotech, life sciences, and believe it or not, philosophy. I had to get that in there, Eden. Thanks for joining us on the show today. David, delighted to be a guest again. So, so Eden, you know, I, there's this study. So uh, I've just become familiar with it in the last couple of days. And on one hand, it's kind of alarming. And on another hand, you sort of th think it's it, it makes a whole lot of sense. So uh, the headline is trust in government is recovering, but a new generational trust gap is emerging. And what this study is finding is that even though trust, the aggregate trust among Canadians is up 5%, apparently it was 34% in 2022, uh, apparently, and by the way, that's the highest it's been since 2019. What what they're finding is that a, a younger demographic is that they're not a big surprise here. Their expectations are are different, and this could lead to you know different voting priorities and different approaches. And but what's interesting is that it's connected. It seems largely uh, to to economics to where we're currently at, and this could really upset the electrical elect electoral map, it seems to me. Can you talk a little bit about some of that uncertainty economically and what you're seeing at, at the level that you're working at? Yeah, sure, David. And thank you very much for pointing out that article to me. I, I found it really intriguing, you know, the bifurcation that we saw between the, the oldest group, you know, such as the boomers and the youngest group, such as the Gen Zers. And, you know, uh, the extent to which their trust in institutions and their outlook uh, differed. I think. I think with the older population, uh, they pretty much had the system and the institutions work in their favor over their long lives, and you know are more politically invested in parties that preserve that, no matter what affiliation that may be. Um, versus the experience of the Gen Zers, which you know in their young lives, you know they've seen. The system raised to the ground first through the global financial crisis 14 years ago. Uh, then, you know, most recently had their high school and university social years stolen from them in a way mm. uh, due to the lockdown. So, you know, I think they're more guarded and more skeptical about decisions made by our generation. You know, they've learned that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I think. Well, and I, I, oh, you know, Eden, that's really in, in, interesting and insightful. And, and, and it's, even though it's a cliche, it just, uh, it so sheds light on, on our current state of affairs. I mean, when we look at what's happening, you know, uh, globally, uh, geopolitically, good intentions are, are, are not going to get us there. It, it, it seems to me. Check this quote out, Eden, from Bruce McClellan, who's the president and CEO of Bruce Strategies. Quote, while trust is improving as we surface from the darkest hours of the pandemic, we see an emerging tsunami of change with younger generations losing trust and changing expectations, close quote. I mean, that's a, do <laughs> that's a doozy, as my father would say. What, 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 is that, what does that mean to you as an investment portfolio manager and, and as someone who's hoping that some of these younger uh, people are going to be, you know, you, not only using your service, but, you know, continuing to invest in, 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 in emerging markets? So, you know, I, 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 I'm pessimistic over the near term, but I'm optimistic long term as the world shifts and, you know, they become the leaders of tomorrow. 
So about 25 years ago, I read this really uh, fantastic book called The Fourth Turning by Straussenhau. And it brilliantly telegraphed sort of the attributes of what the Gen Zers were in all the different generations from the, the boomers to Gen Xers to the millennials uh, to the Gen Zers. And, and, you know, it basically correctly identified this generation. You know, they're more akin to the war generation of the 1930s and the 1940s. Um, you know, I actually consulted my own homegrown set, Gen Z or Satya. Right. Description of Go to somebody you friend. can trust, Eden. Yeah, well, you know, it's, 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 an, ex, it's an expert opinion. It's, it's exactly right. By the way, Saskia is Eden's daughter. Uh, Eden, <laughs> hey, just before you step into that, um, what was the name of that book again for our listeners? It's, it's called The Fourth Turning. By the Fourth Trout Turning. And How. And, uh, you know, I remember back in 2000, I bought like seven, eight copies. I didn't yet know you, David. If, if I had, I would have gotten you a copy as well. But I bought seven or eight copies for friends. And it was wow, the best that's a I commitment. Written. Yeah. And what well, it is, it basically breaks down um, uh, demographics into sort of 20-year generations. And, okay. you know, it's just brilliantly, you know, it's, it's, it's some of the... Um, you know, the forecasts that were made then have just played out brilliantly. And it's not, it's not looking in the future and knowing, it's just how different, you know, um, groups by generation, you know, changes their behavior and what their ideals are and so on. So the reason why I say um, that, you know, why there's reason to be pessimistic in, in the years ahead, um, long-term we're in good hands because the Gen Zers, those are, you know, sort of late teens to their early mid-20s now, um, you know, they have certain ideals, you know, like like my mm -hmm. daughter told me, you know, they're entrepreneurial, they're resourceful, they're creative, they're trailblazing, um, but, you know, they feel a greater need to take their lives into their own hands rather than trust fate or trust the system. And, you know, yeah. ultimately the millennials, you know, they're still rising in influence, um, but ultimately this generation will take over and and, you know, they'll probably create, you know, a better world on a stronger footing with greater influence than, you know, than we have. Yeah, well, you know, Eden, I think that's a, I think that's a pretty profound thing to say about, about the younger generation that, and I think I'm old enough to say this now, that we often sort of poo-poo, right? We, we get yeah. nostalgic about, oh, wow, things used to be so much better in the past. And I'm, yeah. I'm not so sure that's true. I, I, there's a huge part of me that does trust future generations. And, and I mean, check this out. So in this, uh, again, if you want to find this study, it's uh, the 2023 Proof Strategies Can Trust Index. I had never heard of it before, but it shows economic anxiety is impacting trust. Um, look it up. And it was just published uh, uh, just about a week ago. But check this out. So a slim majority of Canadians are at about 53% uh, who expect that, you know, business leaders like yourself should be speaking out on things like climate change and racism and equity and so on, right? That's yeah. 53. Uh, younger Canadians, though, have higher expectations. 61% of Gen Zers compared to 48% of boomers. I mean, aren't companies, companies, Eden, that you're investing in, aren't they going to have to start taking notice of that? Yeah, and, and, and it happens every generation. So if, if you go back to the past generation, you know, we... We've, if every generation either comes along, um, you know, they're, they're, irre they're irre 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 irrevocably changing the world better 
mm. by, by, you know, forcing change and thrusting change upon things where we're accountable more for our actions. And, and I'm speaking as, you know, a company would look at it and so on. Um, and so I, 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 I'm a, I'm a staunch believer that, you know, progress just, it happens in maybe five steps forward, three steps back, but it's always right. upward, always onward. And every generation changes the world for the better. Uh, these ideals come into place. And, you know, and do you remember when the Thames was a dead river back in 1970? Mm. And, you know, certain groups got active, you know, you know, we no longer kill whales to extinction. And, you know, we have green, green blocks, green boxes and blue boxes, right? And, you know, change is slow, but, right. but it, it inches forward. And yeah. Every generation has an ideal that they, they, they put forward that helps us to react to it. I think, you know, in that study that you sent me, David, you know, one, I think one of the really intriguing things coming from the philosophical side that, you know, obviously you and I have had a couple of decades of conversation over is, you know, the relative trust in others. You know, and, yes. and you know how high it is um, uh, for uh, boomers versus Gen Zers. You know, and trust in others, and and I think that's that's almost a. And again, I'm I'm giving away my age here, but I think it's how relationships are experienced in a pre-technology world, such as boomers and Gen Xers have experienced. You know, where where your word is your bond, and you know, yeah. technology didn't define well, the relationship. And yet you, you see how trusting they are about relationships versus, you know, the technology-fueled world right. where, relation, you know, relationship interactions is very different. Sure. You know, perhaps much more mile-wide inch deep. I think it's much more performance-oriented, you know, and, and yet their trust in others is so much lower. Everyone's time is important. And that is exactly what I believe our next interview really is all about. Uh, we have uh, with us the Chief Executive Officer from Four Day Week, four day week Global. Uh, any, any eyebrows raising out there? I hope so. Um, the headline I'm going to read here is a four-day work week can be life-changing should Canadians get, get one. Uh, Dr. Dale Wheelahan is here with us. He is a behavioral scientist and he have, has completed his PhD in exploring, wait for it here, folks, the impact of fatigue and seep deprivation in healthcare workers, particularly surgeons. And of course, he's published uh, published extensively in his field. Uh, Dale, thank you so much for joining us on the show here today. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. So, so, so Dale, I was wondering if you could just sort of step into what your research has been telling you. I'm, I know that um, um, I've, I, what I've been looking at here is a, 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 a six month trial that was done 61 companies, 2900 workers. And I think, I think the thing for me that really bubbles to the surface is this is about, I don't know, is it about working smarter, not harder, but, but, but it's about changing the way people work. Can you, can you unpack that for us a little bit? Absolutely, David. I think the analogy actually I saw today that that uh, really fits the whole approach of the four-day week is it's about, you know, taking the canary out of the, the coal mine, providing it <laughs> resilience training, and then trying to send it back into the coal mine, um, you know, with a futile effort. So we really need to look at changing the, the coal mine, or in this case, the workplace and how we do work. And so that's what has been the work of four-day week global um, for the past few years. I think it might be useful just to give a bit of context to, 
Forging Meat Global, we're a not-for-profit company which was founded in 2018 um, on the success of um, two founders, Andrew uh, Barnes and Charlotte Lockhart, who piloted a reduced working hour in their own company, Perpetual Guardian, in New Zealand. And from that, found huge success of which they have run pilot studies across the US, Ireland, the UK, um, and now are currently running pilots in the European Union, South Africa, uh, Brazil, and um, with plans to expand as well then into Australasia in the coming year as well. How much of this has been sort of fueled or driven by the sort of, we're not quite post-pandemic, but I suppose we are to some degree, or have we been talking about a four-day work week for, for some time? I think we've been certainly having an immature conversation around the need to reduce our working hours for many years, and certainly that's what academics have been talking around. You know, it's been well-established within the research that cognitive fatigue is reached at a much quicker rate when compared to physical fatigue. And when we look at our traditional working models, which we have as, you know, 95 or 96 in many instances, it's modeled off as an industrial revolution style of working where people were a lot more physical. Uh, research has consistently shown that about 3.5 hours of productivity is all we really get in any given day when we're using our brain uh, in, right. in a strong way. And so, yeah, basically, I think we, we had this ground of evidence, but we, we haven't, I suppose, the means to drive the conversation forward. The pandemic obviously rose the, the conversation around mental health and, and well-being in a way that society has never discussed. And we saw radical changes within the workplace, such as hybrid working and flexible working. So I see reduced working hours, the completion of a trifecta of intervention to improve the lives of workers and ultimately what we have found in our research improves the, the businesses or the organization's uh, performance as well. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, I was going to make a kind of a light comment there while you were chatting, but I didn't want to interrupt your flow. The, the, the 20 minute reminder to get up out of your chair on your Fitbit or whatever your device is, 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 is a very good thing from going from being so physical, hyper-physical, you know, a hundred years ago to basically being <laughs> relatively sedentary, uh, you know, in, in these days. Absolutely. And I, I certainly, something I try to practice what I preach, my own PhD, having been in the space of fatigue. And, you know, when we look at the signs around what causes fatigue, a lot of it is around when we start to feel that little niggle or kind of a strain when we're doing our work, that's the best time to get up and to move. Mm. And actually, when we begin to experience that strain even throughout the day, we typically do experience it around the lunchtime mark or, you know, um, coming into the evening time. So what we're trying to achieve is it was a radical change in how we work to allow us to, to not let that strain be pushed into a disengagement and a burnout. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring up uh, burnout. The study that that's out of the University of Cambridge in, in the UK, and I believe Boston College in the US, um, and a, and I, I believe a think tank in 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 London as well. Uh, Sixty one companies, twenty nine hundred workers participated in this. So the study finds that thirty nine percent of employees were less stressed after the four day working week, and seventy one percent had reduced levels of burnout at the end of the trial. I mean, what are we waiting for? Yeah, and so that's the that's the study um, that's the study that we partner with those universities and with those um, companies within the UK, and these are our findings. You know, we we worked with companies to help them introduce reduced working hours, and our partners in Cambridge and Boston have, have found these fantastic results. I think what it means is that 
is the most radical transformation we're seeing in tackling growing levels of burnout and stress that we're seeing in society. Um, I certainly have experience of both in my uh, background as a researcher, but also in my background as a healthcare worker prior to this, that, you know, tokenistic approaches to, to well-being are extremely um, laborsome and also futile. And what I like to call is window shopping wellness, you know, right. mandatory mental health, mandatory mental health talk or yoga at lunchtime is not going to uh, reduce burnout when the workforce itself is under a huge amount of um, pressure um, and doesn't have enough time to actually you know, detach from their work. And Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 